Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. And it's a sunny, beautiful day here in Melbourne. And today we're doing a great book called Sapiens. It's actually pretty cold out <laughs> yeah, there. It's, it's early, mate. <laughs> Bit of a law of attraction kind of starts of the day. Yeah. But Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari, the number one bestseller an absolute juggernaut of the bo- of a book and one of my favorites of all time. Mate, a juggernaut in many ways. It's 500 pages. Uh, it's been a, a long-time bestseller for the last couple of years. And in terms of, uh, I know a lot of people in Silicon Valley we hear about who, who love Sapiens and think it's super important. Mm. For me, personally, I think he's one of the best non-fiction writers I've ever come across. He, this kind of content, when written by a lot of different authors, it can come across as really dry and boring to read. But the way he wrote this, it was like a, it was a really compelling story that you just really couldn't put down this whole book when I was reading it personally. Mate, as you, as you say, mate, it's, a, it's about history and history normally a pretty dry, boring subject. It goes back through 13 and a half billion years of, of history. So there's a lot of stuff in this 500 page book. I think he does it well in, in terms of how he ties everything together mm. and it, it makes an interesting story, not just a, a statement of facts, but a, what, the, what are the actual implications of all of these facts? Mm, absolutely. So about 13.5 billion years ago, physics was born, you know, matter, energy and space went bang in the big bang. About 300,000 years after, chemistry was born, so the interaction of atoms and molecules and so forth. About 700,000 years ago, organisms belonging to the species Homo sapiens started to form elaborate structures called cultures. And then there was three important revolutions that shaped the course of history. So the first was the cognitive revolution about 70,000 years ago, and then agriculture sped it up at about 12,000 years ago. And then the scientific revolution happened about 500 years ago. So the book is all about how these three revolutions took place and how we ended up where we are today as a species. Bang on. And if you think about within those three revolutions, he says there's seven uh, key factors, which he has got inside the front cover. And those seven key things within those three revolutions is fire, which gave us power, gossip, which helped us cooperate, agriculture, which made us hungry for more, mythology, which maintained law and order, Money, which gave us something we can all trust. Contradictions, which created culture. And science, which made us deadly. So if we look, if we go take a few steps back to what we were, say, you know, when we had all the other species on the planet, um, we had a really disturbing little secret. So about 700,000 years ago, we had a lot of brothers and sisters roaming around the planet. Mm. So we're closely related to chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. And if we go back... Uh, a whole bunch of years as you said there was actually a whole bunch of other different types of things that were much more similar to us so he says in east africa there was a homo rudolfensis in east asia there was a homo erectus and in europe and western asia there was the homo neanderthalensis and then of course us which were the the homo sapiens and the homo sapiens won out against all those other three homo species Since survival in the snowy forests of northern Europe, so one part of the planet, require completely different traits to survive and evolve in, say, the steamy jungles of Indonesia, the different human populations evolved with different kind of traits. Mm. And us humans, we, we had a few really distinctive traits where we had an advantage over all these other species that were roaming around the planet. That's right. As you said that we... There was a, a time where there was all four of these different types as well as all the other types of great apes, but... Homo sapiens were the ones that developed the quickest in some key ways that made us win out. So the first one is big brains. So 60 kilogram mammals normally have a brain of about 200 centimeters cubed. 
the early man had a brain of about 600 centimeters cubed and today modern humans have a brain about 12 to 1400 centimeters cubed so we've got these really big brains which is where a lot of our energy went mm. so the jumbo drain on our body was a jumbo drain so you know there's always a cost in evolution if you get one positive trait mm. it comes at the cost of other things so we diverted a lot of our energy through evolution to neurons rather than muscles. So a lot of the other species of humans became absolute beasts, like big magic doors. It says that the, in terms of the brain, it accounts for about 2 to 3% of our total body mass, but it consumes about 25% of our energy. So this small little brain takes a hell of a lot of energy. So it meant that we had to spend a lot more time looking for, few, for, for food in order to fuel ourselves. And it also meant that some of our muscles atrophied because we were concentrating so much on the brain that our muscles didn't develop and we probably weren't quite as strong physically as mm. some of those other different types of human species. Mm. And another thing that was unfortunate as we evolved was human babies were helpless for much longer as our brains developed. So the babies relied on the elders for sustenance. So a hyena would be much more likely to, to jump on a baby uh, at these early stages because we were really helpless. We we're hopeless really yeah. at the start. Human babies are useless. If you look at other animals where babies come out of the womb and you know sometimes they just get up and start walking around, uh, whereas humans are completely helpless for years and years and years until they developed. Mm. Now, another key development uh, of human species compared to, say, the other great apes is the walking around on two feet. So there's a whole bunch of benefits um, of walking around on two feet as opposed to on four. So it meant that well, it was easier to scan the savannah for food or enemies because we had that extra uh, extra height that meant we could look further. It also meant that because we weren't using our arms for walking, we could use them for, say, throwing spears or stones, or we could use them for signaling um, that predators were coming. But uh, the downside of, of this was that because we had such big brains and we were now supporting ourselves on two legs rather than four, there was a lot of like back aches, a lot of stiff necks. And because women had narrow hips, it meant there was a lot more deaths uh, in childbirth because we've got these big brains, big heads, but we've got narrow hips, meaning that both the baby and the mum could die during childbirth. Yeah. Another one of the advantages that we developed compared to our brothers and sisters back in the day was we had tools. So we were not the best on the food chain like we are today. So what we had to do is after the hyena took down the giraffe, we had tools to take out the bone marrow from the mm. middle of the bones that no other animals could get to. And we relied on this to, to get our nutrients in our bodies. So we're basically the, the guys that came in and picked up the scraps That's at the worse end. than the hyenas. Yeah. <laughs> like the lions, they were the big dogs at the top of the food chain able to take out big prey. And they were obviously the first ones there. So they got to eat all the meat. And then you've got your other scavengers that come along and pick up the scraps later. And the humans were at the very bottom where we had to, we didn't get the meat. We got the scraps of what was left, which was essentially the bones. So what we had to do was we had to crack open the bones in order to get to the bone marrow, which was the only food left of, say, an animal carcass. Yeah. So we're the little bitches. We were absolute little bitches. There's no doubt about that. But one of the cool thing, the other cool thing we did was we invented fire. Fire's a, a big one, man. So if you think it's obviously it's a, it's a reliable source of light and warmth, but it became a deadly weapon against lions. Uh, and we discovered fire about 800,000 years ago and used it on a daily basis from 300,000 years ago. Yep. So with that, we, our intestines wouldn't have to 
uh, be as B to digest food because it was cooked. Our intestines could go shorter, mm. leaving us to divert more evolutionary energy toward our brains and neurons to let our brains develop. Yeah. Even it's like this again. positive feedback loop, yeah, where the brain gets bigger, which allows us to use fire, which then allows our brain to get bigger again. Yeah. But so some of the things like carefully manage fire meant that you could just light up a, a whole jungle and clear it out. You could go through later and pick up all the dead animals that have been cooked already and the nuts. And what it also meant that cooking food, we it's they say that chimpanzees spend five hours a day chewing, but because we could cook things like wheat, potatoes, and rice, normally they're pretty much indigestible in their natural form. But when we cook it, we kill all the germs, we kill the parasites, we make it easier to chew and digest than normal foods. So rather than spending five hours a day chewing, we're spending one hour a day chewing. So that's yeah. a man, that's a lot of time. Four hours a day saved right there. Yeah. Mate, it would have been a super interesting time. Well, it would have been a scary time to be on the planet. I'd rather yeah, be here nah. today, but... <laughs> By the choice, mate, I wouldn't go back. <laughs> it would be interesting to have a, have a drone to look around, but, you know, there was all our other different species of animal on the planet. It was roughly a level playing field. We were actually rooting, having sex and intercourse with our... <laughs> Brother, when I say brother and sisters, I mean the context of other species, yeah. <laughs> like the Neanderthal. So some of our DNA is actually a little bit Neanderthal, and so forth. But you know, it was roughly level level playing field, and this goes on to chapter two, where we had this kind of huge step change, where we became the big puppers of the whole planet, and we became the dominant species that we know who we are today. And this was yeah. So chapter two was the tree of knowledge mutation, and this happened about seventy thousand years ago. And this is where we were, became dominant and we started driving all the other species into extinction. No other species was a match for the human race. So this is the, the first big revolution. He calls the cognitive revolution. So he says that we had these genetic mutations which changed the wiring of our brains that enabled us to think in unprecedented ways and to communicate in new languages. So the first big factor we talked about was fire. The second big factor he calls gossip. And so that's telling stories. So as an example, a monkey could call out and they've got a word or they've got a, a sound that says, be careful, a lion. And that's all they know, careful lion. Whereas a humans, the way that we were able to talk, we could say, hey, this morning down by that bend in the river, I saw a lion tracking a herd of gazelle and they were moving east. So that's a hell of a lot more detail than careful lion. Mm. And that's way more important in terms of that gossip and spreading stories that were able to help each other and cooperate better. Mm. So the information we gave wasn't necessarily just about the lion but it was about the things that don't even exist at all. Mm. So it's talking about in the future and so forth. And, you know, this idea of legend, myths, gods, and religions, they all started appearing everywhere because of the, the, um, the cognitive revolutions. Yeah, so we could talk about, we could make up stories, we could tell um, much more detail rather than just the absolute basics. Mm. So all the other species of animal, like the chimpanzees, they could only get to about groups of 100 uh, anything beyond that, it would get very confusing who the alpha male is, who the alpha male is, and so forth. So all all kind of hierarchies broke down um, at that number of a hundred. But for humans, because we could all believe in shared stories and mythology and things like that, we went from groups of a hundred up to groups of a million because we shared in the same belief of you know the king king light king giraffe the the god of thunder <laughs> that's it man. <laughs> they call it um dunbar's number which is somewhere around 150 where that's like a, a group of people that all know each other and all know what everyone's doing beyond that it's hard to track what uh is happening with on an individual level 
But what these stories were able to do were to create these larger groups. As you say, it could be like uh, we're the, the tribe of, uh, you know, Zimbabwe and we have this belief that in Zimbabwe we're all the same sort of person. So we've got this much larger group or, you know, two Catholics can meet each other. And just because they're Catholics, they almost, there's an inherent trust there. Mm, yeah, two Catholics, they could go on crusades because they believe that that in the, well, what Yuval says is, is myth that they believe that God is incarnated in human flesh and allowed himself to be crucified to redeem our sins. So then they could go and just fight a war together, even though they don't know each other. Whereas, say, two monkeys, if they've met, never met, they've never groomed each other, they've never fought, there's no trust there. Whereas if you can say, I'm fighting for God and you're fighting for God, then we, we trust each other. Yeah. And even today, this idea of story, which I never really thought of as myth, but when you really think about it, you're valid. It really is just a made-up story, but... Two lawyers who have never met can combine efforts to defend a complete stranger because they both believe in the existence of laws, justice, and human rights. Yeah, that's it, mate. So we've got all these made-up stories and cultures that allow us to work together in large groups, even though we don't know know each other. So one um, specific implication of this would be if there was a, a one-on-one brawl between a, a sapien and a Neanderthal, Neanderthals are bigger and stronger. They probably, they probably, they probably win. Rip us apart. Yeah. They probably rip us apart. But if you get a hundred Neanderthals and a hundred sapiens, because we're able to talk and communicate and share these stories, we can cooperate a lot better. Neanderthals are going to try and fight on an individual basis, where we're going to be able to fight as a group, and uh, we'd be much more likely to win in yeah. that big, big fight. Mm. So this whole big idea of trust came about. So no other other species could be involved with trade like the Neanderthals. And trade cannot exist without trust. Mm. So the global trade network of today is based on trust, such as fictional entities such as the dollar, the Federal Reserve, and corporations. As you say, mate, these are all just made up things that just because we've got gossip, we've got stories, we're able to trust in these fictional things like like the idea of money and things like that. Mm. So some of the as a bit of a summary, some of the, the things that came out of the cognitive revolution. So he says that a new ability was to transmit larger quantities of information about the world surrounding us. And what that meant was that we were able to plan and we were able to carry out complex actions. Like we could all avoid a a herd of lions or we could all go hunt down bison together. Another new ability was that we were able to transmit larger quantities of information about social relationships. And that's uh, what uh, enabled us to go beyond that Dunbar's number of 150. And another new ability, he says, was to transmit information about things that don't exist, like tribal spirits, uh, limited liability companies, and human rights. And some of the wider consequences of that meant that we were able to cooperate with very large numbers of strangers, and it led to rapid innovation of social behavior. Yeah. Uh, absolutely super so that's uh, chapter 2 of how many chapters <laughs> chapter 2 of 17 mate yeah so we're not going to get through every chapter <laughs> we're not, today we're not going to get through them all it's a big 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 500 page big papa so chapter 3 it was called A Day in the Life of Adam and Eve and what uh, Yuval says is that ever since the cognitive revolution there hasn't been a single natural way of life for sapiens and instead that there's this vast array of cultural choices among a bewildering palette of possibilities so even today as you think humans all around the world there's all these different types of of cultures and in this chapter he sort of explains why but he also explains how dogs um became almost like the second dominant species under humans just because dogs are are clever (laughs) (laughs) dogs have come up a a couple of times in the last few weeks, haven't Man, they? Even last, last week that uh, in How to Friends and Influence People, 
Dale was talking about how dogs are the only animals that don't have to work. They don't because have to work they, they show appreciation. They've worked them. out humans. They've worked <laughs> yeah. out what humans need and they manipulate us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which ties pretty well into this part here. So, they were the first animal out of all the animals to be domesticated about mm. 15,000 years ago. So they started to join the human pack. Yeah, he says that today, if you look at, he takes New Zealand as an example, there's 4.5 million humans, but there's 50 million sheep and there's another another tens of millions of cows. So there's all these domesticated animals today that we have domesticated, but the very first ones were dogs. So he says that if you go back, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, the only domesticated animal were dogs. Mm. And they were previously wolves, right? Yeah. So the wolves, the wolves who started to act a certain way with humans and started to showing appreciation with humans. They started to go on the human side, then the humans gave them more food mm. and so forth. So once they crossed that barrier, these wolves became dogs and uh, they co-evolved with humans. Yeah, he says there was a, yeah, he says it was like a co-evolution where we both evolved together in that humans use dogs for hunting, for fighting as an alarm system against intruding beasts or other human tribes. But also the dogs were able to use humans in that the dogs that were most attentive to the needs and feelings of humans were the dogs that got extra food, they got extra care, and they were the ones that were most likely to survive. So dogs were using humans, humans were using dogs, and we both evolved together. And that's why it says that this there's a 15,000-year bond between dogs and humans, which is why it's still so strong today. Man, there's a really interesting photo in the book. It's a photo of a 12,000-year-old tomb. So it's a 50-year-old woman holding a, a little puppy, like affectionately, mm. of 12,000 years yeah. ago. Yeah. So that it says a lot, obviously, that it could be it could be luck, or the woman he says a woman could have been using it as a pillow or something. But yeah. <laughs> but a much more likely story is that humans and dogs were so close, even twelve thousand years ago, that she was buried with her puppy. The next part he talks about is how humans were able to go from just a small group in Africa to so, uh, like almost infinitely many different types of cultures. So it's the idea of this charismatic leader was born and and evolved. So we had this our cultures and groups needed this charismatic leader to explore the next the, the next frontier, so to speak. Yeah, and he says it generally came about due to this tension between generations. So within the tribe, there's the alpha male who runs the show, and then there's this young charismatic leader, a generation younger, who comes up and wants to be the alpha male. And so rather than fight. He realizes, let's. I'm just going to take a group of people. I'm going to check out the the next set of jungle 50k's over. So he says that there's this splintering of the tribe where the old tribe stays, the younger tribe goes across to find some new area to explore. And he says that across, through this splintering, it doesn't take too long to cross the distance between Africa and China. He mm. said you can cross that in a short 10,000 years. Mm. So we had this built-in kind of tendency to to explore the next frontier and this kind of bridges pretty well into chapter four which is the flood so man i don't know who did it but if you really think about it it's a wild kind of person who's just sitting on an island in in asia builds and invents a boat (laughs) and then just starts sailing into the deep blue ocean to look for australia who the hell does that man (laughs) he says that there was uh most of the humans lived on the afro asian landmass which is all pretty much linked up and there was a few wild blokes who might have swum a kilometer out to an island it would have been like the elon musk trying to get mars of Afro-Asia. Yeah. And it's one, it's one thing to see an island a kilometer away and think, oh, let's try and swim to it. But the next thing is to just build a boat, <laughs> go into the ocean and somehow end up in Madagascar or Australia or New Zealand yeah. that you couldn't even see. You didn't even know it was there. You just took a punt. 
Mate, I know they grow a lot of wild magic mushrooms in Indo. I think that might have been involved. It would have had to have been to just go and explore the, the, the deep blue ocean and just wake up in Australia and be like, fuck, it's kangaroo. <laughs> Mate, so I wonder, yeah, the, the sea created this massive barrier uh, and they, he calls it the outer world and then it was the only, only the most wild people who were able to venture out into the, the outer world. So, he talks a lot about Australia and how the first people in Australia completely changed the Australian uh, ecology. Mm. So, you think about how we evolved in Afro-Asia, all the other species of animal back there co-evolved with us. So, they kind of, you know, looked out for, oh, fuck, that's the, that's the homo sapiens, yeah. watch out for those, run away, <laughs> run away, they're, they're wild motherfuckers. But, you know, we rocked up to Australia and a kangaroo, the mammoth kangaroo would look at us and we're this... Um, quite unintimidating lump of flesh that doesn't really look like a physical threat pretty small pretty weak so they they wouldn't jump and jump away from us they'd just sit there and just like kind of laugh at us yeah and then we just rock up with a spear and just <laughs> dig it straight through its head and and have a lovely dinner so as you're saying in africa all the animals began to learn oh there's humans they got fire they've got weapons we need to be careful was we rock up to australia for the first time and he said there was 24 different uh species of animals that weighed 50 kilos or more and within a few thousand years 23 of those became extinct because of humans and unsuspecting he said there was like a a 200 kilogram two meter kangaroo uh he said there was like a, a type of marsupial lion he said there was a massive tiger uh, he said there was big, big, big koalas uh, and a massive like 200 kilogram wombats. And as he said, they, this massive wombat is just sitting there chewing on the grass. Sees a human come up and thinks, what's this little bitch here? Yeah. Just turns around and goes back to chewing on the grass. Yeah, takes no like- interest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he called the deprotodon oh, a two and a half uh, ton actually. So that's a big, big, big mofo. Yeah. And uh, then humans just come along and whip their fire and spears out and goodbye deprotodon hello breakfast (laughs) (laughs) and the same thing happened in america right so that happened about sixteen thousand years ago so the first americans arrived on foot at the time the sea levels were actually really low and enough to connect northern eastern siberia with northern western alaska and the the journey would have been just as hard in australia The, the temperature and the conditions were absolutely wild so Again, these are just wild Elon Musk's making these these journey into the new lands, right? So he says that um, a few more examples is the Wrangell Island in the Arctic Ocean. He said there was these massive mammoths and they all disappeared when humans first arrived there. And he talks about even the Maoris in New Zealand, who I think he said were only there 800 years ago. Uh, when humans first arrived, 60% of all the species died within the first couple of hundred years. So... He says that a lot of scholars try to exonerate humans. They just say, oh, well, there was an ice age and it wiped out all the animals or he just blames climate change for um, disrupting this ecology. But he's saying there's just too many instances of humans arriving and animals disappearing that, you know, climate change doesn't happen that quickly and animals can adapt. When humans come, it comes and seriously messes them all up. Yeah, he says the first wave of sapiens colonization was one of the biggest and swiftest ecological disasters to fall the to befall the animal kingdom. It's wild, mate. So again, just to, to recap on the Australian stuff, he says there was sort of three big reasons why humans were able to wipe out all these massive animals. So firstly, because they're such big animals, they breed slowly, pregnancy is long, 
and the offspring per pregnancy is very few. So it's not like dogs that have a whole bunch of babies in one litter. Uh, they've probably only single births. And so if you kill one diprotodon, uh, it takes them a long time to recover that one. So it's pretty easy to kill off a species of big animals pretty quickly. The second reason is that we said that Australians, when they first got there, they probably had already mastered fire, which is a massive new technology that the animals weren't expecting. And then he says there's also maybe a small impact of climate change, maybe. Yeah. That's it. So that's, uh, that's part one, the cognitive revolution. So that takes us on the journey from where we were pretty much a level playing field with other species uh, all around of animal around the planet. We had this cognitive, this tree of life mutation where we became absolutely, you know, no, no animal could compete with us and we wiped out half the planet. So we talked about that first, that first wave was the humans going to new lands and killing off all the big animals. He says that the second wave of extinctions came with the agricultural re- revolution and again, killed off a hell of a lot of different types of animals. So what he says that we're currently a part of this third wave, which is all this industrial revolution, which is again, killing off all these different types of animals. And I thought a sick quote, he says, perhaps if more people were aware of the first wave and second wave extinctions, they'd be less nonchalant about the third wave that we are all currently part of today. Yeah. That's powerful stuff, mate. Yeah. So if you think of the first wave was millions of years ago going to new lands and killing off everything. The second wave was the agricultural revolution, say 10 to 12,000 years ago. The third wave of mass extinctions of species is is today. Mm. And we're all a part of it and no one really knows or no one really cares. Yeah. Deep. Mate, we're still... Unfortunately... We're a part of it, mate. Part of it as <laughs> we're well. We're eating our meat, aren't we? Love a good steak. Oh, sorry. So that's the end of part one. Part one of, of four, which was... As we said, the cognitive revolution. There's three parts beyond this. Mm, so we're only a quarter way through book of, of the book. So we're it's a big gonna, book. <laughs> it's a big book. So we're just going to touch on the other parts. And you guys, we highly recommend you go and buy it. But he says, so the part two was the agricultural revolution, which didn't happen until about 10,000 years ago, where we began to devote almost all of our time and effort to manipulating the lives of a few animal and plant species. Mm, and it was this idea of looking towards the future of that if we work really hard today and plant the field with wheat then a year down the track we're going to be happy and have a lot of food yes so prior to this foragers discounted the future because they live from hand to mouth so day to day finding their food and yet it's this it's the first time in our brains we started looking toward the future and this idea and he talks about the invention of work occurred Mm. here during the agricultural revolution Mate, that was a bad time. <laughs> Work, no good. Mate, part three was the unification of humankind. And this is where he says that the idea of money came around and the idea of religion, again, became strengthened. So uh, a book we did ages ago last year about religion saying that whilst the specifics of each different religion are different, the overarching ideas are similar. So this idea of religion and myth and storytelling was strengthened, um, making humans more alike. And also the idea of money and trade in that Rather than trading a, a sheep for some wheat, we could have this central thing of money, which you could, everyone could trade for everything. So we all have this idea of money that unified humankind. Yeah, it's the strongest type of myth. So, mm. you know, the, the Christians and Muslims can go to war against each other, mm. but everyone around the world believes in the story of money. So yeah. that's something that unifies us all is this idea of money. It brings us yeah. all together. It's a massive one. And number four, he goes into the scientific revolution, which really is the willingness to admit ignorance 
and this is based on the assumption that we don't know mm. things in the world, right? So it accepts things that we we know now could be proven wrong yes. through this scientific theory. And that's why, yeah, as you say, that admitting that we don't know things is the first step to really learning things. Saying I don't know means you then go out and look for answers. And that's where this scientific idea came out of always looking for the answers for things. Yeah, he says someone pre-scientific revolution say, you know, a Spanish peasant, if he fell asleep in 1000 AD and woke up 500 years later to climb sailing, he would have seen a world quite familiar in that 500 years. But if someone in 1500 AD on Columbus's ship woke up today and saw someone on an iPhone, yeah. he would have found this was a world beyond <laughs> comprehension. He would have thought we were gods, really. The rate of change is significantly accelerated in the last couple of hundred years. Mate, I wouldn't be surprised if we woke up 30 years from now and wouldn't yeah. be any different, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, yeah, they're the, other, they're the other revolutions and, yeah, buy the book to go and find out about it. Yeah, mate, I'll, um, overall, mate, an overall th- rating of the book... For me, yeah, nine, nine out of ten, nine out of ten. I'm going to give it a seven. It was interesting stuff, a lot of history, not my usual warehouse of uh, interest. Very well told story, um, but for me, it was just information, not too much applicable stuff. So I'll give it a seven. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, fantastic. So Yuval Noah Harari. So, yeah, so this book, Sapiens, was pretty much history, and then he's got another book which we'll do at some point uh, in the future called Homo Deus, which is the uh, future. And then he's got a brand new book coming out in August 2018 called The 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Mm. So looking forward to reading some more YNH. 